0: Hello and welcome to Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. Today's episode provides expert insights on optimizing the diagnosis and management of chronic idiopathic constipation, or CIC, in primary care. It features highlights from a presentation given by Dr. Brooks Cash, Professor of Medicine at the McGovern Medical School at UT Health, the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. To an audience of primary care nurse practitioners and physician assistants. During this podcast, Dr. Cash will address how to evaluate patients for CIC based on current guidelines. He'll share practical tips for implementing individual treatment plans that reflect patient preferences and are sustainable for long-term care. And he'll discuss how shared decision-making with patients can improve adherence to therapy, including dietary and lifestyle modifications.
1: And now, here is Dr. Brooks Cash. Let's talk about CIC, or chronic idiopathic constipation. This is one of the group of what we call the functional GI disorders or functional bowel disorders. that's a somewhat nebulous term. But what we consider functional GI or bowel disorders include things like irritable bowel syndrome, Chronic functional diarrhea, chronic idiopathic constipation, of course, and then other functional GI disorders would include things like functional dyspepsia, sphincter of OD dysfunction, cyclic vomiting syndrome, chronic nausea vomiting, those sorts of things. So they're disorders of function of the GI tract without clear-cut organic etiologies, although there are multiple organic etiologies to a lot of these disorders that we have started to discover over the last several decades. Now, um, the primary symptom of chronic idiopathic constipation is defecation that is infrequent, that is difficult, and that is incomplete. And those latter two symptoms are actually more important to your patients than the infrequency of the bowel movements. Keep that in mind as we go through. And we'll go through some formal criteria as well in just a minute. When we think about chronic constipation, there are three major subtypes that we tend to categorize these patients as having. The vast majority of patients with chronic idiopathic constipation have normal transit constipation. Their colon moves stool at a normal rate, just like everybody else who is considered, quote-unquote, normal. There is a very small percentage of patients, less than 5% and probably less than 3% who have slow transit constipation, what we used to call colonic inertia, the patients who may eventually undergo a colectomy for their constipation. Those patients should be and are blessedly rare. And then there's patients who have rectal evacuation disorders, pelvic floor dysfunction, pelvic floor dyssynergy, and those patients may account for up to 20% of chronic constipation and there can be some overlap with these different subtypes. Now there can't be overlap between normal transit and slow transit but there certainly can be overlap of rectal evacuation disorders combined with the other two subtypes. Pelvic floor dysfunction is something that we typically will find through doing pelvic floor tests such as anorectal manometry or many of you may be familiar with an old-timey test called defecography where we put patients on a special toilet in front of everybody in the fluoro room and they put some barium up there and ask them to push that out. Not a very pleasant test, but we can also do a variety of things. So that's something we don't work up right away for obvious reasons, but it is an important thing to find because we treat that with biofeedback therapy. We're not really going to talk about pelvic floor dysfunction today, but do keep that in mind when your patients are not responding to multiple different therapies that we will go over. Keep that in the back of your mind. Those are patients who may need a physiology or physiologic workup, similar to what we would do for refractory GERD, Refractory constipation, think about pelvic floor dysfunction. All right, what about the prevalence? This is a very common problem. So you see a very wide range of estimates in the US, and this is largely because of the different ways that these epidemiology studies are done, anywhere from two to almost 30%. A good average is somewhere probably between 10 and 15% of the population suffers from chronic constipation, and that mirrors the European data. There are some risk factors that we've identified, female sex older than 65, so older age, lower socioeconomic status, also lower fiber intake, lower activity levels, those are all associated with chronic constipation, but very, very common condition. Now, not all of these individuals actually become patients. Many of them treat themselves just fine with over-the-counter therapies, laxatives and fiber and lifestyle modifications, but because it is so common, we see a lot of these patients. This condition has a lot of impact on our patients, the ones who come to see us, and even the ones who are self-treating. There's an increase in provider visits, a dramatic increase, compared to patients or individuals who don't have these conditions. And there's also an economic impact, increased absenteeism due to missing school, missing work, And then what we call presenteeism, which is simply being less productive at work. you imagine if you had chronic constipation and you're sitting in the toilet for 20 or 30 minutes trying to have a BM, how that can decrease your productivity? So that has tremendous economic impact. It's hard to measure, but upwards of 15 to $20 billion have been estimated to be lost. That's the economic impact. What about quality of life? Well, I think this is pretty striking. When you look at other conditions like renal disease and depression, the quality of life decrement in patients with chronic idiopathic constipation is very, very similar, low back pain. So while this is not a mortal disease by any means or disorder, it certainly has a lot of morbidity, and it's something that we can help our patients with with regards to adequate treatment. So what to ask patients? When did their symptoms first start? What's their frequency, normal frequency, based on actually very old survey data and now more recent data that's validated these results for bowel movements is three per week up to three per day. So hopefully you fall into that category. But there is no magic. What we're taught in our training is less than three per week is chronic constipation. It's actually the other subjective symptoms that patients can complain about or have concerns about. So stool consistency, hard lumpy stools, skibulous stools, we always talk about food when we talk about bowel movements, milk duds, (laughs) rabbit pellets, stool caliber, straining is very important to patients. That is one of the major symptoms of chronic constipation. Having to use manual maneuvers to facilitate defecation. That also we believe can be a sign of pelvic floor dysfunction. So actually even pushing up on the perineum or even using manual disimpaction techniques. What are the precipitating events? Was there something that started this journey of chronic constipation? Associated symptoms, bloating, nausea, abdominal pain, and then alarm features. And simply by alarm features we mean things like hematocasia, unintentional weight loss, a family history of organic gastrointestinal disease, could be inflammatory bowel disease, more often we're worried about colon cancer. So those types of alarm features will mandate a more thorough early evaluation. The Rome 4 diagnostic criteria for chronic idiopathic constipation, this is not the Bible or scripture, so there are lots of individuals who eventually will get this label of chronic constipation who don't necessarily meet all of these symptoms. So the presence are two or more of the following symptoms, with at least 25% of defecations, straining, sense of incomplete evacuation, sense of anal rectal obstruction or blockage, manual maneuvers, hard lumpy stools, and less than three spontaneous bowel movements, Per week, A spontaneous bowel movement is a bowel movement without the use of a laxative. Very simple concept. Loose stools should rarely be present without the use of laxatives, although they can be, especially in the case of what we call overflow diarrhea. And then lack sufficient criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. And that is primarily characterized by abdominal pain associated with abnormal bowel habits. So symptom onset should be lengthy. It should be at least present for six months. And criteria should be fulfilled for over the last three months. So good clinical guide but don't hang your hat on this. Just think about these types of symptoms. Our GI tract absorbs 99% of all the secretions. There's about nine liters of fluid going through our GI tract during a day from what we take in, which is about two liters, and then another eight liters of secretions, and our GI tract does a remarkably effective job at reabsorbing that, but when that's disturbed, we end up with different stool form, whether it's a decrease in motility or secretion or both. Now, common misdiagnosis, irritable bowel syndrome is characterized by abdominal pain. Remember that. That's the critical differentiator between CIC and IBSC. So patients with IBS have abdominal pain with their abnormal defecation, and they can have constipation, diarrhea, or both. And that's really the differentiator. Patients with CIC are characterized by having type 1 and type 2 stool with the other associated symptoms, but they don't have pain or they don't have a lot of pain. It's not their central symptom. Patients with IBS, pain is the central symptom around which everything else revolves. The pain is associated with the change or the abnormal bowel habits. And on the converse, there's functional diarrhea, which is analogous to CIC. Not a lot of pain, but abnormal loose stools. So risk factors, older age, female, physical inactivity, low fiber diet, low caloric intake, low socioeconomic status, and polypharmacy. There are multiple other risk factors as well, but those are the main ones. And here's the alarm features. Age over 50 is there for a very pragmatic reason, and that is if patients haven't had a colon cancer screening test, as a gastroenterologist, I'll say ideally a colonoscopy, but there are lots of other tests that are appropriate for patients who are at average risk for colon cancer screening. They should undergo some form of colon cancer screening. Chronic constipation is not a mandate for colonoscopy. Chronic diarrhea, however, probably should be followed or evaluated with a colonoscopy to rule out inflammatory conditions, microscopic colitis, and the like, but chronic constipation, not necessarily. But if patients are of colon cancer screening age and they haven't received their screening, by all means, do take this opportunity to do that. I think as patients come in with symptoms, they're going to be more amenable to undergoing those types of tests. Unintentional weight loss, fever, rectal bleeding, nausea or vomiting, anemia, and a family history, especially of GI malignancy. Let's talk about how we evaluate these patients. There is some routine blood work that is typically recommended, but realize it is very low yield. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to get it every time you evaluate these patients. If you have an EMR and there's a recent evaluation with the CBC or thyroid function studies, That's probably all you need. Complete metabolic panel. Make sure patients don't have hypercalcemia. Also reasonable to do. But really the yield of doing that blood work is about the same as if you took 100 people off the street and just did blood work on them. Consider colonoscopy if there are alarm features present. And then don't routinely order. Abdominal CT scans, what we call the ERCT, when patients come into the ER. Barium enemas are really of no use in patients with chronic constipation or colon cancer screening anymore, or really at all, except maybe in patients with IBD. And anorectal ultrasounds, we will do that in patients who have fecal incontinence passive fecal incontinence, not urge incontinence where they just can't make it to the toilet in time, but when they actually lose stool without knowing it, those patients do need some sort of pelvic floor imaging, whether it's an MRI or an anorectal ultrasound. They certainly need anorectal manometry to assess the sphincters, but for chronic constipation, it's not an early recommended evaluation. let's talk about the treatment. Very broad strokes here in terms of our therapeutic approach to patients with chronic constipation ranging from lifestyle modifications such as changing the diet, increasing fiber intake, over-the-counter laxatives, exercise, adequate hydration, toileting behavior, stress reduction, and then pharmacologic agents. So a multimodal approach Most of the time when patients come to see me, especially in our tertiary center, they've tried a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of accessibility to these over-the-counter agents and lifestyle modifications. Not all of it is great information. We always take a good medical history. And if there is room to change something, by all means do consider at least a therapeutic trial of an alternative. So identify medications that may worsen constipation symptoms, discontinue them whenever possible. Toileting behavior. There actually is a right way to poop. And some countries do it very well. The United States, because we have terrible posture, myself included, don't do a very good job. So there are commercially available things that you can actually have patients. The key to appropriate toileting is all about positioning the pelvic floor and using the abdominal muscles. So first step to give patients in terms of this information is elevate their knees above their hips, ideally, lean forward, straighten out the abdomen, and then spine, bulge out the abdomen, and really use those abdominal muscles to try and increase that intra-abdominal pressure to allow appropriate pelvic floor descent. And of course, all this presupposes that the anal sphincters are working in concert. When patients have pelvic floor dysfunction, that's the issue, is the anal sphincters actually tighten instead of relaxing. And so basically, patients are pushing against a closed system or they're corked. And I always tell patients, we have to uncork the bottle for you to be able to poop. So uh, also, patients should not Suppress the urge to defecate. We do this a lot in the United States as well because we're busy. We've got to get to the train or we've got to get to the bus or. Got to get to a car to get to work. So they'll suppress the urge. And that has been associated with chronic constipation. So do encourage patients not to suppress the urge. Limit their time on the toilet to five to 10 minutes at the most. If they're not successful, they need to get up, move on, get active, and walk around. Limit the frequency of trying to defecate to to three times per day. And, And typically, the urge to defecate is going to be after a meal. The gastrocolic reflex kicks in. We all have this reflex. It's a vestigial reflex. And patients should not ignore that. So non-pharmacologic treatment, water intake. This is a bit of a myth. It's great for the urinary system, but it doesn't do much for the GI system. Water is freely absorbed from the GI tract, and when we drink coffee and soda, what we're really drinking is mostly water, with a little bit of stuff added. So there is some data in uh, institutionalized or, or nursing home patients that shows that adequate fluid intake is important and can help ameliorate chronic constipation. But in an ambulatory population, which is what most of us are seeing, water intake really doesn't do much good in terms of a treatment for chronic constipation. But it's important to at least consider. Exercise has been shown to help with chronic constipation. It can be something as simple as walking. Fiber intake, important, soluble fiber. That's the key. If you use a bunch of insoluble fiber like bran or have patients eat a whole bunch of broccoli and other green leafy vegetables, they're actually going to get quite bloated and they will be very unhappy. So soluble fiber has been shown to actually improve chronic constipation symptoms and much better than insoluble fiber as well and then stress reduction and what we mean by this is there have been studies that have shown that patients who do meditation or specific focused cognitive behavioral therapy or even mindfulness trying to get them from catastrophizing about their symptoms or focusing on their symptoms so much has actually been shown to be helpful for chronic constipation and biofeedback therapy is the therapy for pelvic floor dysfunction it is a physical therapy just like physical therapy for the knee or the hip. This is anal rectal physical therapy, typically five to six sessions. Patients learn to use these various maneuvers, and it's all about teaching them how to toilet appropriately, and that's been shown to be very helpful, about 70% response rate in patients with pelvic floor dysfunction. Stool softeners, kind of like fluid, don't really seem to help chronic constipation. Very appropriate for self-limited constipation. Patients who go on opioids, add a stool softener in there to try and prevent that opioid-induced constipation. Absolutely. But once patients have had symptoms for years especially, stool softeners really don't do much. The other agents are osmotic laxatives. So here's a generalized treatment algorithm with regards to CIC. We start with lifestyle modifications, over-the-counter therapies, then we move to laxative therapies. Some of these are over-the-counter, like PEG like milk and magnesia. If patients improve, you're done. You just continue that regimen until you and the patient decide to not do that anymore. If there's no improvement, then you may consider either switching to another class of therapy. If there's a partial improvement, you may layer an additional laxative therapy on board if patients still are dissatisfied then you may go hunting for overlap with pelvic floor dysfunction and then you can continue that regimen or refer to gastroenterology when you're just fed up and you can't take anymore this patient coming and <laughs> complaining about not being able to poop. all right so use laxatives as first line therapy for cic and then consider prescription agents if those therapies are ineffective let's talk about the agents that are available and the first ones we'll talk about are osmotic laxatives and that includes agents such as polyethylene glycol sorbitol lactulose and then milk of magnesia these work by holding fluid in the GI tract they have no inherent promotility effect per se they just hold on to fluid. There can be some adverse events such as electrolyte imbalances, hypermagnesemia in patients who are really overdoing it with milk and magnesia, although it's very uncommon, but nausea, bloating, those sorts of symptoms can occur. Then there's also stimulant laxatives, and stimulant laxatives include senna and bisacodyl. These do increase motility. These are also what we call irritant laxatives. They cause a release of serotonin and other neurotransmitters to cause the colon specifically to contract and push its contents in a caudad fashion. These also can cause electrolyte abnormalities. Crampy abdominal pain would be the most common adverse event with stimulant laxatives, and these are over the counter as well. Some of them are prescription. What about prescription agents? Well, primarily for the last 10 years or so, these have fallen into what we call the secretagog class or the prosecretory agents. And there are three agents in that class there are chloride channel activators, such as lubiprostone. And then there are two guanylate cyclase C agonists, and that's linaclitide and placanitide. And now more recently, we have approval of two serotonergic agents, prucalopride, which is indicated for chronic idiopathic constipation. It's a 5-HT4 agonist. And then another 5-HT4 agonist, and that is tegaserod. That's an agent that was available once upon a time, then was pulled, and now is available again in women with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation who have one or fewer risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So quite a restricted indication for tegaserod, and it is not CIC, it's IBSC in terms of that indication. So here's how these secretagogues work. They bind to the guanylate cyclase C receptor, which is on the luminal aspect of the GI tract. So actually, these are small bowel cells. These are enterocytes in the small bowel because that's where these agents primarily work. And in binding to that GCC receptor, guanylate cyclase C receptor, they cause an accumulation of what's called cyclic GMP. That cyclic GMP does two things. Number one, and most importantly, it opens up chloride channels, in this case the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. That's the enzyme that's broken in cystic fibrosis. And it's a chloride channel. So when you open that up, you allow chloride to go into the gut, sodium follows, and water follows. So you're bringing water and salt, basically, an isosmotic fluid into the GI tract. The other thing that cyclic GMP does is that it seems to attenuate visceral hypersensitivity via the afferent neurons of the gut. Less important is the treatment for chronic constipation. It's the prosecretory effect that's more important. Now, lubiprostone is a direct activator of a specific chloride channel called a type 2 chloride channel, so CLC2, and it opens that channel up and does almost the exact same thing as the secretagogues. brings chloride in, sodium follows, and then water follows. That's how the prosecretory or secretagog agents work. Here's data with regards to lubiprostone. Looking at chronic constipation compared to placebo in week one, the standard dose of lubiprostone, 24 micrograms twice a day. Uh, did significantly better than placebo. Patients went from about three spontaneous bowel movements per week up to about six spontaneous bowel movements per week in lubiprostone versus placebo. In terms of just a response to treatment on a percentage basis, about a 60 to 70% response to treatment versus about 25 to 30% with placebo. Linaclotide. this is agent is quite effective in patients. The dose for chronic constipation is 145 micrograms once a day. This is one of the GCC agonists. It did much better versus placebo in terms of its primary endpoint for this trial, which was at least three complete spontaneous bowel movements per week. So that is a bowel movement without a laxative, but it's one in which patients feel completely evacuated. So that's a high bar for a bowel movement and patients had to have at least an increase by one CSBM per week compared to their baseline for nine out of 12 weeks. This is a really difficult and rigorous FDA-mandated endpoint. Linaclitide did significantly better than placebo for that endpoint, and of course, what we see in clinical practice, we don't ask for those endpoints, we just ask patients if they're feeling better, if they feel like they've had a response, and it's significantly higher than that, and we don't use placebo in clinical practice either. Placanatide is really a me-too agent, The main difference between placanotide and linacletide is placanotide is thought to be pH sensitive, so it exerts more of its effect. It binds more avidly to these GCC receptors in the small intestine, and it is thought to have low rates of diarrhea as a result of that. Linaclitide binds these receptors not only in the small intestine, but also in the large intestine. So placanatide is, we believe, more focused on the small intestine because of the pH sensitivity of its binding avidity to the GCC receptors. Same concept here, significantly better than placebo, and this is patients who had an increase of at least one CSBM per week, at least three per week for nine out of 12 weeks, and actually three out of the last four weeks as well. In terms of the 5-HT4 agonists, I mentioned tegaserod and precalipride. The way these agents work is they stimulate Motility. They're prokinetic agents. And they do that by mimicking serotonin. Serotonin is the primary neurotransmitter that controls motility and secretion in our GI tract. And so these agents bind to 5 HT4 receptors and they cause basically an accentuation of the peristaltic reflex. There's also evidence that they do increase secretion to some degree, but they're really more prokinetic agents. So they're pushing down on the accelerator in terms of GI motility. And we'll look at procalibride data. This is the one of the 5-HT4 agonists that's actually approved for CIC. It's not approved for IBSC. The dose is two milligrams once a day. Six studies have been done, randomized controlled trials. Five out of those six showed statistical significance relative to placebo. The endpoints that were used was at least three complete spontaneous bowel movements per week over the 12 weeks of the studies, and it did dramatically better than placebo for that endpoint as well. So it's nice to have an additional agent with a new mechanism of action for those patients who may have some degree of slow motility. Of course, bowel obstruction is always going to be a contraindication to using laxative. If you think somebody has a bowel obstruction, they have a bigger issue than chronic constipation. They need to be evaluated appropriately. Diarrhea is going to be the main adverse event. You will see suicidal ideation and behavior. This is actually a class effect for 5-HT4s. There is no data that actually supports this, but the FDA mandates this language in the package inserts. But there's no data to link the 5-HT4 agonist's with suicidal ideation or behavior, so just keep that in mind. We include it for completion's sake and transparency, but there's no good data to support that statement. It's an FDA rule. How long should these agents be used? Well, it's really up to you and the patient. I don't necessarily use these agents indefinitely, although they are approved for indefinite use. I will attempt, if patients are interested in coming off therapy, we'll do a, what I call to patients, this a trial of life. You responded to this therapy. It's working for you. Let's do it for six months. I usually will try and get them to at least agree to do six months of therapy. And then we'll pull it off and we'll see what happens. And every once in a while, patients don't need to be reinstituted on their prescription agents. Sometimes they get constipated within a week and you have to restart it. But it almost always works again when you have to do that. If patients have no response to therapy, switch classes. Go to an entirely different class. If they have a partial response, you may need to layer a different type of laxative. It can be an over-the-counter laxative on top of a prescription laxative. So maybe a secretagogue, let's say they have a 60% response, perhaps consider putting them on an over-the-counter stimulant laxative. Keep that in mind as well. If patients don't respond to two or three different classes of laxative therapy, think about anal rectal dysfunction, refer them to a gastroenterologist for a more thorough evaluation, and that's what we're specifically going to be looking for in most of these patients, although I can pretty much guarantee everybody's going to get colonoscopy even though they don't need it, and then move on from there. Thank you very much, Dr. Cash, and
0: thanks to listeners for joining us. As a reminder for additional programs on topics that are relevant to your practice, please visit practicingclinicians.com or go to pce.is.